It's Easton Podcast, Episode 4. I'm George Tekmanchov, and I'm here with Steve the... Big Cat. Anderson. Steve's in Poland. I'm in Salt Lake City. And, uh, well, Steve, you're at the World Cup in Poland. Uh, it's going on right now. It uh, started out with the qualifying round for the recurves. The compound qualifying round's taking place. And we're going to talk to you in a little while about how you shot. But uh, what about those American recurve guys, number one, two, and three? Colin, Sean yeah. McLaughlin, and Brady Ellison. What's up with them? Yeah, those guys, they were actually one, two, three, four at the half. And then uh, uh, Zach just fell off a little bit. He finished seventh overall. Zach so, Garrett. yeah, they're, they're all shooting good. Shot good scores. I mean, all of them uh, around the 670 mark and, and, and above. And they shot well. Yeah, first place, uh, Colin Klimchak of the United States. Second is Sean McLaughlin of uh, Ohio. Third place, Brady Ellison. Jean-Charles Valadant, world field champion, is fourth right now. Crispin Duenas from Canada is fifth. And uh, and then we've got uh, a bunch of good shooters in the mix for the top ten, including uh, Hideki Kikuchi of Japan and Marcus Dalmeida of Brazil's uh, solid tenth place. So uh, how are the conditions looking? Extremely hot. We're about 36 Celsius. Uh, wind was pretty good. You get some You get some wind picking up here and there, but... It's been fairly ideal, um, around 7 to 10 miles an hour, I think. Just a big difference, though, temperature-wise from what we encountered uh, the previous week in Copenhagen. Yeah, I mean, pretty much twice as hot, so... You got... Is Linda yeah, there? Is, uh, uh, is she feeling right at home now? Yeah, this is more... Well, I mean, Guadalajara's usually got it pretty nice. You know, they don't get much above uh, 27, 28, but... Yeah, she's she's liking it a whole lot more than than Poland, as I or excuse me, as Den, than Denmark, and, and, as I assume most shooters are. And speaking of Mexico, Ida Roman is on top for the recurve women, the London Olympic silver medalist with a six sixty five score ahead of Deepika Kumari of India, the uh, former world cadet champion, and then Sophie Planier of France is uh, is third. Sao Hui of the People's Republic of China, fourth, and then the Americans have uh, made a showing here. Mackenzie Brown of the USA uh, showing up in fifth place. Anna Maria Rendon, another standout. She's seventh. Uh, Bombela Leshram of India is number nine. And Lisa Unruh of Germany, number ten. So um, solid performances from Ida Raman here in uh, Poland, Steve. Yeah, Ida was, uh, I think she would have been somewhere around top 10 for the men as well. So she shot really well. Yeah, she'd uh, be about eight, I think. That, yeah, all the recurvers shot at the same time. All the compounders shot at the same time. So um, there's there's not nearly as many people here, and we have a pretty big field. So we shot uh, an A-B line, and that was it. So it was continuous shooting. You actually you didn't have to uh, take a break. You know, if you were if you were target A, you didn't have to wait for C and D because there was no C and D. So just shoot right it, uh, Things went quick. Well, the uh, Ukrainians and Russians are on top of the board for the compound women. We have uh, Maria Skolna of Ukraine with a 693 on the board. Svetlana Cherkashneva is second, and Maria Vinogradova of Russia is third. If you look at the bracket, uh, if you're on INSAO and you look at that bracket, the top half of the women's compound bracket is pretty gnarly. I wouldn't want to be there. Um, the bottom half is a little more manageable. There's some, some young talent there, but the top half is full of winners so yeah, that's yeah. uh that's going to be an interesting one really solid you got um you got christina hagenhauser uh the world champion um fourth place right now natalia Avdeeva is uh fifth 
And let's see, Albin and Loganova, two-time world champion eighth. You got world champion Marcello Tonioli. And uh, ranked number two in the world from the United States, uh, Crystal Galvin, who just took second place at the world championship, rounding out the top ten. But you got a lot of other heavy hitters in the top, oh, I'd say uh, top 18, including Linda Ochoa, your wife, Yasim Bostan, yep. the junior champion. You've got uh, Jothi Venom from India, solid shooter. Runa Gradeland from Norway. Just a lot of, uh, of solid performers at this event so uh you know we're seeing uh, yeah and, and most of those girls you just mentioned george are in the top half of that bracket yeah that's, i can see that yeah like i said that one's gonna be uh that's gonna be a fight no doubt out about of that. it no doubt okay and then finally uh i i haven't even clicked on the pdf yet here we go it's the compound men Braden gallantine number one so he's shooting pretty solid. You're 10th. Good job, Steve. Yeah, and he had a couple eights in the second half as well, so he left some on the table. But I guess because he shot a 354, 354. That's pretty darn consistent. Yeah. And finishing ahead of the uh, new world champion, Stefan Hansen. Uh, Bridger Deaton's third. Mike Schlosser is fourth. Esmail Ebadi of Iran feeling pretty good after the Iranian men won in, uh, in Copenhagen last week. We've got Rio yes. Wild of the United States 6th, who's probably, um, well, I guess enough time's gone by now. We can talk a little bit about Rio in a minute here. <laughs> Sergio Pagni, 7th. Dominique Genet, number 8. Martin Damsbo, number 9. And our big cat, Steve Anderson, number 10. So good job there, Steve. Uh, 700 on the, on the nose, huh? Yeah, it was kind of, uh, I had a really good second game going. Um, our last end was, was very windy. And uh, we hadn't had a ton of wind the whole time, nothing that wasn't manageable. And in the last, the last end, a bunch of us got caught. I shot a 55, Rio shot a 55. So it's kind of a, left a sour taste in the mouth to finish the round, but 700 is never a, a bad score. No, so. it's awesome. It's awesome. Uh, and you're in there with some great company. You've got Peter Elzinga also with a 700, and uh, Demir Amagakli of Turkey with a 698. Uh, let's see. Oh, Alexander Dambayev, uh, also with a 700 there. So really good shooting yep. on, on your part. And, uh, well, it'll be really good to have you back in the office. We're, we're happy to see your performance there this week. Let's talk a little bit about the deal with Rio because everybody and their mothers had a chance to weigh in on this by now. Um, yeah. and we, we did promise our listeners that we, we'd, you know, say something about it. And look, first of all, let's, let's reiterate. This is a horrible thing to happen to anybody. And it wasn't only to Rio. We had a total of three shooters sign for an incorrect score at the World Championships and lose 100 points as a result. Uh, unfortunately, in Rio's case, it took the American team out of contention. And he's got to just be feeling low about that. Yeah. Now it, you know, something I heard this week, and whether this is true or not, I don't know, but there were somewhere around 126 scorecards that had errors on them. And they were signed. Yeah, um, so I know that's was... a rumor that was going around. I, I don't, I, I can't say whether that's credible or not, but we do know there were three. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to hear. But yeah, there was, uh, obviously, he signed a scorecard that looked like it said 200 and whatever points, and it was supposed to be 300 and whatever points, and uh, they docked him 100 points, and it, it, uh, eliminated him from the tournament he didn't make the cut um therefore the u.s men's team didn't make the cut and that's kind of a rare occurrence it's, i can't i can't think of the last time that ever happened 
So yeah, it was. Uh, Last time it I mean, happened I, I, involved a disqualification because of uh, another incident uh, back in 1997. But that was an indoor tournament, a world indoor. And uh, one of the Americans had tested positive for the use of beta blockers. That's the last time I can think of anything like this. And, and of course, no cheating happened here. Nothing like that. Uh, but that's the last no. time that the Americans were not uh, not on top of a podium or you know in contention for a podium at a world championship. Yeah, at least competing. So yeah, it's strange. Well, it's the same thing. Keep your head down and and keep the arrows pointed north. And I know you're going to come back with a medal. I sure hope so. That would be ideal. <laughs> Well, we're going to shift gears for a moment here. Now we've got a special guest with us. It's Mark Pizzoni, president of Easton Technical Products. Well, thanks. It's going to be fun, I hope. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of, the, one of the great things about the podcast is it gives people a behind-the-scenes look at the company a little bit. You know, and we've talked, uh, Steve and I have been talking about various things at the various events that we've been to. We're recently back from Copenhagen at the World Championships, and you were there. We want to get your thoughts on that, but... Uh, I think this is a great opportunity to first introduce you to the to the listeners today. And so, who is Mark Pizzoni? Mark Pizzoni, number one, is a bow hunter. I am a bow hunter. I actually grew up hunting in Pennsylvania. I had my first firearm. I think I was like 8 or 10 years old when I had a little twenty two. I used to plink with. And then started hunting small game first with, with a shotgun and then graduated into hunting deer first with a rifle. But... My earliest experience with archery was I actually flung arrows at a cardboard box in my backyard with a little, uh, you know, uh, fiberglass type bow that uh, and shot Easton arrows, believe it or not, way back then. So that's how I got started in archery. And it was in my late 20s, early 30s, around there when I really got into archery hunting for big game. And I loved it. And it has been a lifelong passion of yours. Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh. I mean, just the challenge that it took in order to take a big game animal with a bow versus a gun really fueled me. So I love the fact that it was tougher. I had to learn how to be a better hunter, how to get closer, loved every aspect of archery. So, and I love it today. And I see you often after work, you know, shooting, um, you know, working on your form, working on practicing, working on getting everything perfect. George, my form needs a lot of work. That's well, <laughs> uh, I think all of us can relate to that idea. Okay. But, you know, you do shoot a lot, and you enjoy yeah, shooting. I do. I do, and it's relaxing to me, actually. So, you know, when I practice, um, I can concentrate on uh, executing the shot. And one of the things, in addition to just the fact that I feel like I'm realizing a primal drive within me to hunt the other thing archery hunting does for me it's one of the few things that takes me away from life's daily problems i mean when i'm archery hunting i don't think about anything else i really feel that i have to concentrate truly on what i'm doing turn on certain parts of me and in the way i the way i think the way i sense things that or sometimes dulled in our society when we go through society, you know. So to be a good hunter, you got to turn those things back on. It says a lot for our sport <laughs> that somebody like you running the one of the largest companies in our industry uh, takes the time and is still passionate about archery after many years. I think that's a fantastic testament to the, to the power of our sport. Mm -hmm. oh, I really do love it. Let's talk about Mark Pizzoni, the businessman, a little bit. Okay. You joined Easton a couple of years ago. 
Yes. And you came to us from another big archery uh, concern, Bowtech. Yeah, I was with Bowtech, and I love that. So let me back up a minute. And it's, I think it might be interesting to some people to find out how I and why I joined Bowtech. Um, I was with a, another great company, Snap-on Tools, for 14 years and loved it. You know, the thing about me is what drives me in my career and in my job, and it took me a while to figure this out is I really have to believe and be passionate about the product or service to enjoy what I'm doing. You know, even though my background and training is financial, finances in, in itself and in the finance world and accounting does not get me excited. What got me excited was when I was working on financial aspects of a certain product or service that I believed in. And, you know, Snap-on saw that. And they took me beyond the world of finance and started giving me businesses to run. And I love tools. They build things. They, they're constructive. They're cool. So, you know, I use tools on a personal basis. And to be able to actually make them and see them constructing things and everything really, really got me excited. But then I got a call from a previous business associate that actually took Savage out of bought the business out of bankruptcy and Savage Arms. Very, Savage Arms made it a very, very, very successful business. And he called me and said, "Mark, I want you to think about something. I'd like you to run this bow company, Bowtech." And I was like, "Are you kidding me? I've worked 14 years to become an officer of a multi-billion-dollar company. I'm going to quit my job and run this little archery business." I'll tell you what, he knew what he was talking about because as soon as I flew to Oregon and looked at it, I fell in love with it. And I asked my wife, and she was willing to, again, uproot and uh, take on the challenge at uh, Bowtech. And I really, really loved what I did there at Bowtech. It was Ooh, awesome. It was, was pretty smart of your friend leveraging your archery <laughs> passion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, you know, at this point in my life, it's fun because I get to choose to do what I want, you know, for my career rather than have to. Yeah. You know, frankly, early on, when I, I, I was married at a very early age of 21 years, I was looking to feed my wife and, and me. And when we had children, feed them and put clothes on their back. Once you get past all that and you get to a later stage, you can kind of be a bit more choosy about what you want to do. So I choose to work at Easton. And I, I, and I I believe it's a really great choice and that I love my work. I really enjoy it. So I, I get the impression your wife put, still puts up to this day uh, your, your archery passion. She does. She doesn't share it. You know, Debbie respects what I like, and I respect what she, what she does. She's a gardener, uh, you know, can paint, very creative. I'm not good at any of those things. But, but I really, really, really enjoy the outdoors and enjoy hunting, and she gives me that space, which is awesome. One of the things that uh, I wish I could show, actually, we will find a way to show our listeners because we can roll some still photos on the podcast. You've got rattling antlers hanging right behind you yes. on the real ones yes. that you made. Absolutely. Yeah, so I enjoy making things, and to me, the reason I did these special rattling antlers, just a little bit about them, the, the antlers themselves are... I, t I cut the brow tines off and then uh, drilled two holes in each brow tine because you don't want the brow tines in the way when you're rattling. You know, I've done that and it hurts. You know, you can smack them together and hurt your hands. So the brow tines act like a little bolo tie that you can adjust the leather tether between each um, rattling antler. And then they're gr to make the grip comfortable, I actually took deer skin, deer skin leather, 
and made leather grips. And if you can envision the way you throw a football and you want that, you know, the lacing where your fingers are, I positioned the lacing on the rattling antlers the way you grab them so they feel comfortable in your hand. And so they're not only great utility, they're a great conversation piece. And when people come in my office, they look at them, those are cool, you know, where'd you get those? Oh, I made them, oh yeah. And, you know, so you get to remember the deer that they came from, the, uh, you know, the deer's skin uh, continues to provide utility through the handles. Uh, it may bring another deer in for me to hunt. It's just cool. I love doing it. Another thing you've done behind me is your uh, meeting table, and on there is your business <laughs> card holder. It's a boar's mouth, wide open with <laughs> enormous fangs, you know, your yeah. tusks of the boars. It's a testament to the animal that you're using them for something practical yeah. after the, years after the hunt. Yeah, so it, it does two things, George. One is the animal actually lives on through this thing, through this this object that is part of its body, part of its being, that continues after its physical life on the earth is gone. So that's cool to me. And the second thing is I can remember that hunt. When I look at that, you know, whether it be a trophy mount on a wall or a lamp I made out of antlers, I make deer antler lamps, both table lamps. I've made elk lamps that come up from the floor out of elk antler and all that stuff. So to me, it's a living, it's a living tribute beyond the physical life of the animal. And I just think that's cool. I just like it. And my wife's kind of like, enough with the antler stuff now. But we have one whole room in our family room and is pretty much that's all I'm allowed to take, and I take every bit of it for um, things related to the animals I've been able to hunt. It's about respect for the animal and respect for the hunt, though. That's what Absolutely. I'm saying. Absolutely. Plus, I love the meat. I mean, just about every animal I have taken, including bear meat, I love it. Some people say, oh, I don't like bear meat. Uh, my wife's a great cook, and she knows how to prepare it, and it tastes great. So Let's drag the conversation back to business for sure. a minute. One of the big themes at Bowtech and continually for for 90 something years here at Easton made in USA oh absolutely you're passionate about that I am passionate about it but to continue to make things in the USA um, one of the things I learned at snap-on I had great training there in lean manufacturing so you know when you when I say the words lean manufacturing some people glaze over like what what the crap are you talking about Basically, if I was to define it in very simple terms, it's elimination of waste. So we got a lot of waste in a lot of American manufacturing, and that just isn't going to sustain over the long term in order to continue to make products here because we're competing against other countries that have much lower cost labor base. And to, to be able to continue to make things in the States, we got to think lean. So Snap-on paid for great training for me, brought over senseis from Japan with interpreters, taught me the lean principles about, you know, how to analyze uh, the manufacturing facility and beyond even that administration in terms of elimination of waste. And the people here, once we showed them the tools here at Easton and started really getting on that path, have done some awesome things. And again, what's fun to me at this point in my life is not just product, it's seeing people succeed. The look on their face when they're like, if you show them what good is, and they gravitate to good, the smile on their face, the fact that they understand their job has longevity here because we're able to compete more effectively. That is cool. I get, I get jacked about it. It's making things smart. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So the future, of course, is uh, our, our sport of bow hunting is, is constantly under pressure, mm-hmm. constantly challenged. 
Um, where do you see growth taking place in the in the archery industry in general, not just with Easton or mm-hmm. or with our specific business, but in general, where do you see that happening? Well, I think all of hunting is under pressure. And first of all, if you look at what's happened in order to get permission or find a place to hunt, this my personal experience is it's a lot easier for me to find a spot to hunt on if I'm using archery as my weapon versus a gun. It isn't that I don't like gun hunting. I still enjoy it. I still do it once in a while. It's just the perception among the landowners, um, people that are around, even people that have never hunted, when they find out I'm a hunter and then they kind of wince sometimes, you know, some of the non-hunters will go, oh, you're a bow hunter. Well, that's, that, that's a different thing. That's, that takes really another level of skill. So they, they realize the fact that you've got to be closer. You've got to know your target better. Um, it, it requires another level of commitment. So I think that, that it's easier to get um, permission to hunt archery in, from what I've seen. Um, on many times in the United States when you're, when you're shooting a bow, it's, it's just easier. Uh, beyond that, another f- aspect of archery that I see growing is interest in target. Um, I've never been a target shooter, per se, where I've competed at, at any level. Thank God for those people that might be shooting against me because they've had an easy time, maybe, uh, or an easier time competing against me. Like I said, my form's not that great. I, I target and uh, shot and practiced in order to become a more proficient hunter. So I didn't really think about competition and, you know, shooting against another individual. It was me trying to improve and get to the next level. So I became um, more of a uh, efficient hunter, you know, execute my shots better, uh, less of a tracking job, you know, more respect for the animal. So that's why I practiced. However, I've had the opportunity with Easton because we have great presence in the target market people who do compete it is awesome awesome seeing the level of skill and execution we just came back from from copenhagen and and the tournament oh my gosh you got people shooting 70 meters and putting them in a bullseye fairly repeatedly impressive and people from all over the world competing under pressure having people watch and then the color commentary that's done you know, I, I never even realized that you got people announcing and talking about these people's background and what the scores are and just the camera work that was done, you know, with overhead camera shots and shots from the ground. I was, like, blown away. I mean, it was awesome. Yeah, Absolutely real, awesome. a real show that World Archery has put on. What's your impression of World Archery's efforts and, and their effort to try to bring target archery to the masses? You, you mentioned, of course, you were impressed. But, right. you know, as a professional, uh, what do you think of, of the way that comes across? I think it comes off as very professional, very organized. And here's one of the things I really liked it, you know, to be a little more specific about when I make those references, what I'm talking about. I didn't find myself bored in the stands. So sometimes, you know, you're watching a sport and it's dragging. You know, they're taking too long between, you know, sequences of exciting parts. And they kept that event moving. I mean, the shooters, you know, shot and then it's, by the way, it's timed. So not only do you have to shoot at 70 meters, you only have so long to execute the shot, which I didn't even realize till I um, paid particular attention to the event and got to attend and understand it. So it keeps the event moving. 
once you have winners, here's the other thing that I found torturous in some instances. They drag out the award ceremony to the point where, yeah, you want to recognize the shooter, but you don't want to bore the audience. And I didn't find any of that with this event. It was real quick. Yeah, it was very quick. It kept pace was moving. People were engaged. I like that. I'm glad you liked it because, you know, I work on target archery over here. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're responsible for all the good stuff. But if the bad stuff happened, it's somebody else, George. No, no, no I've got uh, nothing to do with the good you. stuff I'm or the bad you. stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you, we're all just as passionate about target archery on, on my side of the aisle as as the bow hunting guys. And some of them, of course, mix, right? I mean, yeah, a lot of our bow sure. hunting guys are target archery guys, too. Sure. Steve Anderson, for example. Right. But, you know, I think they're outside of bow hunting, outside of the United States, Canada, South Africa, the small pockets that are available in places like France, we are definitely on a growth trajectory in target archery, and it's kind of exciting to see, I think. Um, but the a, other thing is... parallel, I see, if you don't mind. Sure, please. I interject, because I, I don't want to miss this point. You want to find out about me and, and what I am about and my relationship to archery. Whether you're a hunter or a target archer, I knew this was true of hunting. I didn't realize it was true of target archery until I came back from this event and got to know some of the target people. The camaraderie that it builds. You know, I have relationships that have been formed through hunting that are really, really strong friendships. They're not acquaintance type. I mean, I have acquaintance you know, type relationships too that have been established. But some of the friendships and bonds as you share a hunting camp, oh my gosh. I mean, the trust level, getting to know the person, you know, the downtime from the hunt when you're not even out there actually trying to execute a shot and take an animal are just times I wouldn't exchange for anything. And I saw that with the target side. There was great camaraderie. Even though these people are competing against each other, they congratulate you, con- excuse me, congratulated each other and had respect for each other's skill level. Um, I watched during the downtime in the hotel or the different, you know, off hour, um, activity, there's a real bond there on the target side. So I think that that's shared by both hunting and target archers. Yeah. Because we've got one thing in common and that's the joy in the flight of the arrow, I think. Right. You right. Know? Exactly. Well said. Well, what I, what struck me, what I was going to mention was that, you know, you and I've been shooting 40 years mm-hmm. each and, um, it struck me how young and therefore how what a long future Many of the participants of the world championships are and will have because it's a lifetime sport. That's what's that's what's beautiful about our sport. It's a lifetime sport. Yes, and the other thing, you know, one of our strategies for our company is that we have customers for life, and those words are easy to say, but not so easy to have happen. So it's aspirational as as much as I hope as it's inspirational for the people here. But why I'm so serious about that is. Um, you know, when I hunt and I establish some acquaintances and have a chance to, you know, have a hunting camp or hunting experience, one of the really cool things is to have, um, kids or even adults that have never tried to hunt before come along and learn and seeing them, you know, be successful in their first hunt, uh, or even if they're, you know, the success might be just. The fact that they came to camp and they had an animal appear, and even if they missed it, they're so excited. And seeing that excitement and having them learn, it just is, it just fuels me. I love that. I love that aspect of what we do. And it's there in target archery. I mean, I attended the NASP, the NASP tournament 
down in Louisville this 10, year. 10,000 kids and plus, yeah, right? It was like 12, I think 12,500 was the count over Amazing. three or four days. And these kids were very, very excited and very, very, they not only had fun, but they were serious about what they were doing. And one of the young guys that was really cool that was actually didn't realize he had qualified for the final shoot was on his way to the prom. And he was totally dressed in tuxedo gear and the whole thing as he was going out the door. He found out that he was qualified, and he came back and shot in his, uh, in his uh, formal clothes, for the, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. how serious they are about it. So he deferred the prom gig for a little bit to try to shoot the finals. Well, it tells you something about <laughs> the passion that some of these NASP kids have for the sport. Absolutely. Well, growth is something that Easton is committed to. The Easton Foundations are spending millions of dollars a year committed toward archery growth, building archery centers across this country, contributing to the new archery center in Lausanne, Switzerland, being built by World Archery. We are uh, committed, you know, our corporate motto, advancing archery's legacy. What does that mean to Mark Pizzoni? Yeah, you know, the reason I, th- I believe in our vision statement, you know, advancing archery's legacy is several things one this sport has been around many many years you know the idea of archery goes back to the beginnings early beginnings of man huh so archery's been around a long time easton started in 1922 my experience in business and in life is it's really tough to stay around for that many years if you aren't serious and don't make a commitment and don't have your act together in what it is you're doing. So Easton's had that longevity and that test of time. Yet we don't want to stand still, huh? We don't want archery to be some history note in a book. We want it to continue. We don't want Easton, although we started in 1922, to be stuck in the dark ages. So we're constantly looking at innovation in a way of arrows or targets or other things that we bring to market. So that's why that statement in three small words is powerful to me. We want to we acknowledge the legacy of both archery and Easton, but we're not standing still. We're advancing both. So I want archery to be around and not be an old man sport for just people with gray hair like me. I want you know, young people to be taking up the sport. I want Easton to be around for generation to generation. So I think it's pretty powerful in just three words. Mark, that's a, <clears throat> a great testament, I think, to the vision of, of uh, both yourself and our leadership here at Easton to advance archery's legacy. Well, we've got the, uh, the bow hunting season coming right around the corner. And, and I, I am jacked. I am excited. I know you're looking forward to it. So I'm hoping that I can get your commitment to come back on our podcast and tell us about your next adventure uh, as the bow hunting season Adventure is a good word because, as we all know, it's hunting. I may get something. I may not. <laughs> so we'll see. Mark Pizzoni, president of Easton Technical Products. Thanks for joining us here on the Easton Podcast today. Hey, thank you, George. Oh, it was great to be able to talk to Mark Pizzoni, get his perspective on archery, and uh, a real passionate guy. He's, uh, he's a real pleasure to work with here at Easton, uh, Steve. I know you'll agree. Yeah, Mark's uh, very easygoing, but at the same time, he cares about what he's doing, and he has he brings a lot of energy to the table. He's fun to work with. Yeah, fun to su- work super intense, actually, is how I think of him. You say easygoing, but, you know, I, when I... Uh, when I see him in a, in a big meeting, you know, he gets so animated and so passionate that it's really, uh, it's pretty cool. It, it just uh, keeps everybody really motivated. All right. Well, yeah, he's, he's a great leader. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome to uh, have somebody who's got that much passion for our sport. Um, okay. We're back uh, looking at what's going on in Poland this week. And um, it's the last shot for Poland 
to stage a World Cup for the foreseeable future because next year it's going to uh, it's going to Berlin, right? Uh, yeah, I believe this one goes to Berlin, and um, and then uh, when do we go to Salt Lake? Twenty seventeen. That's right. Yeah, it'll be in Salt Lake City in twenty seventeen instead of Colombia, uh, which will be big shoes right. to fill. Colombia has been doing a great job with the World Cup uh, for the last three years. Yes, and uh, this one has been fun. I think Berlin would make a great stage as well. So at this stage, we've got um, one more to go after after this. And uh, it's starting to solidify as to who's going to make the finals. Steve, you got any, any uh, idea of, of what we're, you know, who we're going to see in those finals, you think, at this stage? Uh, it's hard to say on the recurve side because a good number of the countries aren't attending this, so they may lose some points. Um, and then you get a country like Korea who oftentimes they choose not to attend the World Cup final because – they place greater importance on some of the other events uh, rather than world archery specific events. Yeah, you know that they're um, gearing up for the uh, test event in Rio, for example. Yeah, so it's kind of weird because a lot of the recurve teams aren't here in preparation for that. They'll go to Colombia and then go directly from Colombia to the test event in Rio. Yeah, it makes a lot of um, sense, really, because, I mean, it's the same time zone. It's, it's just a, a better situation overall than going to Poland. Yeah, and with uh, World Championships having, you know, just passed, there's a number of shooters who have just decided that that's their year. You know, they trained a lot. They trained hard for World Championships, and maybe they're a little burnout, or maybe the World Cup and World Cup final isn't anything they really had in, in mind this year. So um, at the conclusion of World Championships, that was kind of the conclusion of their season. I know P.J. Deloche from France, one of the top men's compounders, He's not here, and I don't think he plans on doing any more events this year, which is um, a, that's a huge, huge competitor that's uh, no longer on the shooting line. You think he'll just focus on indoor at this stage? Yeah, I think PJ is probably ready to, uh, you know, just let his mind clear. It was a tough season for him, and um, he didn't have the success that he normally does. I, I think he's just ready to move forward and i can't say that i blame him i maybe he has some other stuff going on i really don't know but um i think we'll see pj rocking again come first indoor world cup in marrakesh we've got some really cool stuff in the works for the indoor season by the way uh can't say quite yet but next week this time i think it'll be uh world news uh, for <laughs> preparation for the indoor season take that as a uh what do you call that a uh, teaser right I think so, yeah. Yeah, you know what we're doing. So pretty cool stuff coming up. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, a lot of shooters have come directly to Poland from the Worlds in Copenhagen. Um, and, you know, some some of you guys have been on the road for for a month now. I'm thinking of Crispin, for example, you know, because he had Pan Am games before the Worlds. And then, you know, he went from there to Poland. So it's got to be tough to, uh, to stay on top of it. How's people's morale uh, with this much time on the road? Oh, yeah, it's been... I mean, just for me personally, George, I think I've been on the road for about 20 days now, and I'm, I'm ready to come home. I'm tired of answering emails via iPhone. I just want to get at my desk and hammer out some work and catch up. Um, yeah, everybody thinks, that, it's, yeah, everybody those, thinks the life of a, of a person working in archery is nothing but fun. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what's fun is sleeping in your own bed once in a while. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, I mean, the, the American recurve guys uh, – 
and gals and Crispin. Yeah, a bunch of those guys, they've, they're going to be pushing 40 days or so on the road. Oh, and yeah. That's, that's hard. Uh, I, I have a hard time doing it myself. I would prefer to go home at least for a few days in between. I know, like, Braden, for instance, my teammate, uh, Brian Galantine, he opted to go home after Worlds. So he, he went home Monday and then turned around Sunday and came back, you know, and that's that's tough to do when you got a, a six to eight hour time change and you you don't really adjust back before you're turning around and coming this way again. So you kind of hope to meet your internal clock in the middle and be able to catch some sleep after the first night. Yeah, I, I heard from a news story that um, that uh, Crystal Galvin wasn't feeling all that great in the heat and she's pretty tired. She's been on the road for quite a while. But then, you know, she went to Copenhagen and she went back to the States to work and then went back to Europe. That just drags it out of you alone, and then the heat's not not so great for her either, I guess. Yeah, it's roasting hot here. But she's um, shooting well, though. Yeah, she's she's shooting well. She had uh, like Rio and I. She had a really tough final end today. She was actually leading going into the last end, and then had a, a really tough end. Got caught in some wind, and dropped her to tenth place. So, um, yeah, she's she's shooting good. I mean, I expect her, and she's on a good side of the bracket. I expect her to make a run tomorrow so team usa first for the recurve men for the compound men and for the uh, mixed team for both recurve and compound so uh bet you're happy to be wearing usa on the back of your shirt right now yeah we uh we shot through the mixed team today they uh ended up losing to iran so they're going to be in the the uh, bronze medal match against colombia um and then our our mixed team recurvers uh fell to belarus who as Brady Ellison mentioned to me today, he said, you know what, Belarus, you don't see their individuals uh, getting real strong finishes, but as a team, they often shoot really well. And he told me that yep, early on. Right. And then sure enough, they, they made it to the finals. I think they're in the bronze match, but they made it to the finals. Yep, Brady's absolutely um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, well, you know, it's not going to be a cakewalk with Columbia either because, as you know, uh, solid compound shooters, and uh, and that will be a challenge, no doubt. Definitely. All right. Well, we'll look forward to an update from you uh, as you uh, find some time to get back on FaceTime with Steve and uh, and join us again. We'll do another podcast before the end of the week so that we can update uh, what's happening in Poland and look ahead at the remainder of the season because uh, Steve is going to be back in the office next week. And uh, while he's got a pile of work to do, it'll be good to have him back here and... Uh, We'll have one more from the road and then one more when you get back to the studio here, Steve. Yeah, it'll be uh, good to catch up back at home, but let's hope to hammer out one more of these uh, around week's end. So also, once we get the final field you, set. You know, we've, we've set up the uh, podcast email address, and we've already gotten some emails about it. And uh, we've neglected to mention the email address uh, for the last couple of podcasts, so I'm going to mention it again. It's podcast at eastontp.com. Podcast at eastontp.com. And so when you get back in the office, Steve, we're going to tackle the first question uh, that we received, which was a good one, came from a listener in Finland. And uh, so we will uh, we'll tackle that one next week when you get back. Perfect. All right. That's going to wrap it up for our podcast right now. I'm George Tekmachov with Steve the... Big Cat. The tired Big Cat. You're missing your cue. <laughs> Anderson, <laughs> who is in Poland right now. Steve, have a... Have a great night. Shoot well tomorrow, buddy, and uh, I'm going to hit stop right now.